Thank you, Adam and the team for leading us in worship. God is good and uh, words are powerful. So maybe just say to your neighbor or someone sitting next to you, God is good. Actually say those words because they're powerful words and they're true. God is good. Well, my name's Chris Norman. I'm one of the leaders here at, uh, at Grace Gathering. Today, our, the focus of our message will be on a Christian practice that the church has been participating in for a very, very long time. It's a, it's a Christian practice that over the centuries has actually caused some division within the church historically. And uh, it's act- the, the, the practice is actually intended to bring the church together. Uh, so it's been uh, disappointing in that regard. Um, however, it is a practice that every denomination of every tribe, of every kind of church all over the world in the history of the church uh, has participated in, and that's called communion. Some uh, call it uh, the Eucharist. Others call it the Lord's Supper. Uh, Some refer to it as an ordinance. Others refer to it as a sacrament. There are different perspectives and different points of emphasis. But however the, the points of emphasis and the different perspectives on communion, we know that as Jesus has brought to us um, the the issue of the practice of communion. It is intended to bring us together around him. And I want to begin this morning by reading a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament that actually forms a foundation to our understanding of where the origins of communion came from uh, and why we practice it today. Uh, God's people in the Old Testament were slaves in Egypt. God raised up uh, a leader named Moses to lead them out of slavery and out of Egypt against Pharaoh, who wanted to retain the Israelites as slave, slaves and as slave labor in, in Egypt. After miracle upon miracle of judgment against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, Pharaoh would say, well, I will now release you. And then his heart would harden. And then he'd say, no, you cannot be released. And this happened repeatedly uh, over time until the final act of judgment when he said, enough, leave. And this is known when they did leave, it's known as the exodus or the exiting That's what exodus means, exit. The exiting out of Egypt and eventually came to be known as the Jewish practice of Passover. Now we're going to read uh, some rather large portions of scripture this morning um, as we begin to really understand uh, from a biblical perspective what communion is. Is all about. And so we're going to read an account found in Exodus chapter 12. So you are welcome to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. And we are going to read uh, 42 verses from that passage alone. And then we will read some other chunks of Scripture also. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household's too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all of the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and on the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat with the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it's left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and on another one, on the seventh day, do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made without eat with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. 
take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the, Lord your, that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then you tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt. For there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. Worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you said, go. And also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry, leave the country, for otherwise they said, we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders and kneading troughs and wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth where they were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for generations to come. It's one of the most riveting and well-known stories in the Old Testament. This was historically accurate. This is, is exactly what happened. 
It's a story that's difficult to read as there are many stories in the Bible difficult to read, thinking about all the loss of life. And sometimes it can cause us to say, well, is that really fair? And the challenge that we have with, when it comes to the issue of fairness is that most of us don't have an understanding of what the holiness of God is. That actually there is no sin that can be in his presence. And there is no one righteous on all the earth. In other words, there is no one that is innocent. Not even one. Anyone that ever gets spared of God's judgment is not because they've been innocent or they haven't done anything wrong or they've earned it. It is only by God's grace. And so God's holiness and his grace to free his people mark the depths of the story. God brought judgment on the entire nation of those living in the land of Egypt. They worshiped other gods. They rejected the God of all the earth. And while there were many plagues of judgment against them that were intended to get their attention and to turn their hearts back to the creator of the universe, Pharaoh and the Egyptians refused. And so God brought down another plague of judgment that was worst of all, putting to death the firstborn child and animal of every household. You see, anytime we, have, we, 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 we read scripture, we think that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. We can't take a perspective where we're on judgment over God and what's right and fair. His ways are better than our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. He sees all things. We're the creation. He's the creator. We can't make judgment saying, yeah, I think you're fair. Or I think you're not fair, God. It doesn't work that way. He's the creator. He's the potter. We're the clay. Now we can wrestle with things but we never place ourselves above the scriptures or above God. We are always in submission to him. And his way is always true. But through Moses, God told the Israelites, you will escape this judgment, even though you're still guilty. You're still guilty of going astray. You will escape judgment and receive God's grace if you sacrifice a lamb. And if you apply the blood to your family by the door frames of your houses. And if you apply the blood of that lamb to the door frame of your houses, then when I bring judgment, I will pass over that house and your family will be spared. Not because you're more righteous, because you've done the right things, but because of my grace alone. And when the angel of death brought judgment upon the people in Egypt, the angel did in fact pass over every home that sacrificed a lamb and applied the blood. Now, I am sure there were some that said, you know, is this really going to matter? And you know, I don't know if we should actually do that. We aren't told that every single Israelite did it, but we have no reason to believe they didn't. All, we just don't know. We aren't told the details. But as you're sacrificing the lamb and as you're applying the blood, you had to actually believe. You wouldn't do it otherwise. 
And then the night came and at midnight, the angel of death came to every home and brought judgment and death. And every home that had blood on the door frames passed over and received God's grace. And Pharaoh finally released the Israelites to leave Egypt and they were freed. And this act of God's judgment and his grace were never to be forgotten for the Jewish generations to come. And God told them, I want you to have a specific practice every year where you mimic some of these same things that occurred historically on this particular night. And it's to be a remembrance celebration called the Passover. Because this is the night God's judgment passed over every family that sacrificed the lamb and applied the blood. And this is what the Jewish community has been doing for thousands of years, even to this day. But what's important for us to know is that the event of the Exodus and the events surrounding that first Passover evening were actually prophetic, symbolic of the ultimate lamb who would shed his blood and bring grace to anyone in the world who applies his blood to the door frames of their hearts. And so we read, for example, John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verses 24 and following. It says, now the Pharisees who had been sent question him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look. And he pointed the crowd over and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And everyone in the crowd understood the language. The night Jesus was betrayed was no coincidence that it was the Passover meal, the annual Passover meal. It says in Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 1, now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, Make preparations there. 
And they left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Just let those words sink in. The connection between the historical Passover and what Jesus was about to do. Eagerly desired. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And we know in the book of Revelation, there'll be the marriage supper of the lamb and we will all celebrate together that great feast. And that's a picture of what's to come. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And it is coming. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Intimate moments at the Passover. A tie and connection between the historical events in the book of Exodus and Jesus as the Lamb of God. Earlier when Jesus was teaching and there were large crowds following Jesus and large crowds followed Jesus because of two predominant reasons. One, they loved his teaching and two, they wanted a touch from God. Those are good, those are good things. However, most of them weren't, weren't coming to Jesus because they wanted to lay down their lives to follow him. Most of them were there because they wanted to get something. And when Jesus would often teach and then he would call them to lay down their lives, many in the crowd would just say, I'm not up for that. I came here to consume what I could get. In fact, one incident, Jesus is, 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 is teaching, large crowds are there and he begins talking about this idea of his body and, and his blood. And if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood and, and the, many in the crowd were like, I'm out, I'm out of here. Most left, they didn't want to lay down their lives to follow Jesus. And, and then Jesus looked at the 12 and said, well, are you guys leaving too? We read about this in John chapter six. It says in verses 51 and following, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I'll give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. Well, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, he's using literal language. They're like, well, I don't understand this. Jesus said to them, very true, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, it's it's really important for us to, to understand there have been different understandings of communion over the centuries. And there are predominantly four different perspectives and interpretations of the elements of the bread and the cup. Let me tell you what they are. The first is called transubstantiation. This is the Roman Catholic understanding and interpretation of communion. And here's what happens in transubstantiation. The elements are transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus. And so the priest has been commissioned and has the authority to take the elements and before anyone else consumes them, he says these words in Latin, hoc est corpus meum, which is the words, this is my body. And when he says hoc est corpus meum, the bread literally, not figuratively or symbolically, literally, from their understanding, literally turns into the body of Jesus. And when you take communion, you aren't taking something representative or symbolic. You are literally taking Jesus's flesh. Similarly, with the cup, the, the, the drink is turned into literally his blood. Now, it tastes the same, And they say it's a mystery, but it's literal. That's transubstantiation. Now, consubstantiation is the Lutheran perspective. And so there was debate historically in the church and some broke away from the Roman Catholic tradition and said, I don't, we don't believe that Jesus is literally in the, literally the elements, but we believe that Jesus is literally contained in the elements. And the, 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 the common phrase is up in and up, um, are in, with, and under. And so when you take communion, Jesus is actually in the elements. Not, he's not literally the elements, but he literally is in the elements. It's a very fine line. But this is the distinction between the Roman Catholic view and the Lutheran view. And the church divided over these kind of nuances. And then you have the reform view. And said, so, you know what? We don't believe that, there's like, that Jesus is literally the, the bread and the cup and, or he's literally in them. But we do believe that G- Jesus is spiritually present during the time of communion. There is mystery there. And then the final view is the um, memorial view. And this view is that the practice is, is, a, is purely a symbolic remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, what's Grace Gathering's view on this and perspective? Um, At Grace Gathering, we would feel comfortable with the third or fourth view. My personal conviction is the Reformed view. I certainly don't believe that the elements somehow mysteriously 
are transferred into the literal body and blood. But I do believe it's more than just a symbolic thing that there is actually an element where Jesus is present. There is something unique about taking communion together where Jesus is involved and we receive the blessings of partaking communion together. And let me tell you why I believe that it's more than just a symbolic thing. Because the Bible says that if we take communion in an unworthy way, the Bible says some have gotten sick because they've taken it in an unworthy way and some actually have even died. We read this in 1 Corinthians 11, which says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the, the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep and died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we're judged in this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Just a couple of, of Greek words in this understanding of communion that's used in the scriptures. It says, Jesus gave thanks. The Greek word is eucharistis. It's where we get the English word Eucharist. The Eucharist simply means giving thanks. It's at the heart of communion. Another word, when, it, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it's the Greek word anamnesis, which is where we get the word amnesia. But when an A is put in front of a word, it means the opposite. And so amnesia is yet you forget. The opposite of amnesia is you never forget. And so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, in memory of me, it's anamnesis. Do not forget. How often should we take communion? It has been a debate over the centuries. Some say every day. Some say once a year. Some say once a month. We aren't told in Scripture how often. It just says when you do. We have good reason to believe that the early church, based on Acts chapter 2 and other passages, that the early church probably took communion every day. But we aren't told in Scripture how often to take it. It's just to be a regular practice. At Grace Gathering, over the years, over the decades, we've typically taken communion once a month. This last year, we've been taking it every week. 
It's part of our opportunity as we come together to respond to how God's moving, to, to tangibly participate in remembering the body and blood of Jesus. Could do it every day, we could do it once a week, we could do it once a month, but it's part of our practice. Now some would say, well, geez, if you do it every week, then it just becomes more routine. Well, you could say that about a lot of things. Don't read your Bible every day because it could become too routine. We don't take that perspective. And so we, every opportunity I get to take communion, if it was every day, I would take it every day, but we are to take it in community. It's part of the unity of the body. And so we do it every week. It's a great opportunity every week to take communion. It's about unity. Now, what does it mean to take communion in a worthy way versus an unworthy way? Let me just give you just a few things before we take communion together. Number one, you recognize the seriousness of your sin. We can't, have, we can't go to communion and have a cavalier attitude. And we all have sins of thoughts. We all have sins of, of words. We all have sins of actions, acts of disobedience, acts of omission. There is no one who's sin free. And so when we take communion, we need to understand the serious, the only reason Jesus died on the cross is because of our sin. That's how serious it is. Secondly, you recognize the price Jesus paid on the cross with his body and blood. We come with a deep sense of humility, gratitude. He would do this for me and for us. Next, you confess your sins and you turn from unrepentant sin. Again, a part of this, this not having this cavalier attitude is that we're not living hypocritical lives, unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin, habitual lifestyle, and then just kind of casually taking communion. Next, we, we receive his grace by personal faith in Jesus. See, what applies the elements of taking communion and the presence of Jesus is because we have faith in Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection. There needs to be an element of personal faith in Jesus that we've all come to in our own lives where we've repented and placed faith in Jesus and become his child. And lastly, you recognize the fullness of complete forgiveness. I mean, someone that would say, well, I don't want to take communion because I've messed up so much and I have so much darkness and so much sin in my past. That's an affront to the comprehensive nature of forgiveness. There is nothing, nothing that you have done that the cross isn't sufficient to cover. And so to have this attitude, well, I'm not worthy to take communion. I, just, I want to hold back and not take communion. That's a lack of understanding the fullness of the grace of God. And so past sins, present sins, future sins, the blood of Jesus covers it all. We can approach communion in faith and in humility but with confidence, not because of anything in and of ourselves, but because of everything he's done. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take communion now, and uh, we're going to do it a little bit differently than we usually do. We usually have stations around the room, um, but we're going to uh, have 
uh, various um, people serve communion this morning. So I'm going to ask those couples to come up on the stage uh, at this time. And we are going to serve you communion. And we're going to have... Um, we're going to have these different leaders at, um, if I could have another, where's our other fourth couple? Okay, yeah, yeah, John and Teresa on the side maybe over here. Yeah, be great. Here you guys go. Um, so uh, let's pass that down. So, um, so we have unleavened bread. Now, what we read in 1 Corinthians 5 is that leaven actually is representative of, of sin. And and so part of the symbolism of unleavened bread is that we actually um, contain, or we actually eat and consume um, bread without yeast. And it's symbolic of several different things, but in the New Testament, you know, it's symbolic of um, being free uh, from sin. And so we read in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, where it says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. And when we um, serve you communion this morning, we're going to use the same words Jesus used. Now we understand the implications and the the biblical understanding of that, but we're going to use the same words Jesus used. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I'm going to hand out those who will be passing out the bread. And those who will be passing out the cup. Okay, you guys can go. And we're going to spend some time as a, as a family, as a congregation to pause and spend some time in confession so that we come to the table and take communion in a worthy way, not cavalier or um, without introspecting our own lives. It's a time to allow the Spirit to bring sins to mind and confess them. Jesus has paid for it all. There's nothing that he hasn't paid for. Confess it. And remember what Jesus has done and then anticipate his return. So let's just spend a few moments here in self-reflection. And so, Lord, we just come before you um, confessing our sins. Lord, we've all gone astray. Our minds often are divided. We don't put you first. We don't put you at the center of our lives. Our, our, our hearts go astray. Lord, we, we confess that we think things that we shouldn't be thinking. 
our hearts get enticed by what the world has to offer. We find ourselves slipping into materialism. We find ourselves slipping into self-absorption. At times we lack compassion. At times we say a harsh word that we later regret. At times we do things that we wish we wouldn't have done. At times you call us to step out and we don't. We confess these things to you, Lord, and thank you so much for what you've done on the cross. We look forward to being with you forever and ever. And as we take communion together, may we remember what you've done and what you're doing and give thanks to you. Thank you so much for your grace that everything has been cleansed through Jesus. Everything. And we're free. We're forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.